0: Split Screen, Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now.
1: I would say that, on the whole, since this whole pandemic thing began, Canadians have been pretty good at following instructions. Not every single one of us, of course, and not perfectly, but when we've been asked to do something, To stay home, to wear a mask, to maintain a social bubble, to only see family outside, whatever it is. Most of us have done it, and only a handful have really complained. That speaks, of course, to our relatively agreeable nature, but it says even more about the need for clear instructions for us to follow. Now, I'm not sure where in Canada you're listening to this, but all of that brings me to Halloween here in Ontario. As you may have heard, things are getting a little scary here.
0: 821 infections are being confirmed today across Ontario. We've only seen one number higher than that. That came back on October 9th.
1: Those numbers aren't good. And so naturally the province has in response urged us to again go back to the rules that we were given at the beginning of this pandemic to only socialize outdoors, where it's possible to maintain distance, to wear masks to avoid crowded indoor spaces, but also to make sure you walk and get exercise. You know the drill by now, you've heard it, which is why
0: they canceled Halloween. My friends, we need to work together this Halloween to protect Christmas and the holiday uh, season this year. If you live in a hotspot in Toronto, Ottawa, York or Peel, We would strongly recommend uh, avoiding door-to-door trick-or-treating this year and finding other safer ways to celebrate with your household look
1: i'm not the smartest person in the world when it comes to this virus but we've been talking to a lot of those people on this show over the past eight months and a few things keep coming up first is that we can find ways to do things safely especially things that happen outside the second is that this pandemic has been harder on our kids than we know. And the third thing is that communication on this virus has been a nightmare. The more we learn, the more we have to change our messaging and the less people listen. So with that in mind, why are we canceling Halloween in Ontario? What are we learning about the way this virus spreads that changes the way we need to talk about it? And what kind of myths are making the rounds that keep us, and maybe even politicians, from making the right call? I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Dr. David Fisman is an epidemiologist at the Dalalana School of Public Health. He is also our favorite person to talk to through this pandemic, even though he has rarely had great news for us. Hello, David. Hello. Can you start by explaining, um, as I sit here in Ontario, how it came to be that uh, my daughter can't go trick-or-treating next week?
2: You know, I, I'm i not sure. I, I, I get the sense, uh, and again, this is through the grapevine, that there were concerns that the signal that trick-or-treating is fine and that we could all sort of go outside and have a good time together might lead to folks congregating more indoors as well. I do know that in a lot of parts of the city trick or treating is an indoor activity, you know, in in mm-hmm. in apartment buildings and so forth. Kids do it up and down corridors. I think there was some concern that, you know, perhaps the messaging was just too challenging and that we would wind up doing this wrong and have a surge in cases at a time when, you know, cases are going up anyway and it's just I think one of the arguments that's been made is that this is very much an optional thing, and you know we don't need it to sustain society, and we can cancel it this one year. But yeah, there's a, there there does seem to be a fair bit of disappointment out there, certainly on the internet, uh, a lot of people uh, uh, expressing uh, consternation that. Well, this is yeah,
1: it's what I mentioned in the intro to this episode, which is, you know, one of the things that that you've been very clear with us about is the need for consistent communication um, from public health officials. And I think some of the consternation, including on my end, comes from the fact that all along we've been told, you know, wear masks, do things outside where you can maintain distance and that kind of stuff. And and then at the same time, the province is, is opening dance studios, but saying don't trick or treat on your block.
2: Right. No, and, and I think, that, you know, I think there are two kinds of inconsistent messaging here. One is entirely forgivable, which is that the understanding of what this is and how it works has evolved a lot since February. And so I think it's reasonable for people to circle back and say, you know, we didn't understand that a few months ago. We understand this differently now. So the messaging is changing. The messaging is shifting I think <laughs> the inconsistencies you're, you're referring to, which, which have happened you know, within a, w- within a period of a couple of days or sometimes the same day as here, is you're being told on the one hand that an activity that seemingly should confer risk is risk-free and can go ahead. And on the other hand, an activity that many of us would say is, is minimal risk if done right, has been outright canceled. And I think it's jarring. And you know, other, others have made the point. It, it's very difficult to keep people on side and keep them on, keep them compliant. If your messaging is inconsistent and starts not to make sense, to be completely uh, frank about this, Halloween is not a hill that I personally would choose to die, die on. It's, I, I don't think it's a big deal either way to me. I realize that other people may feel strongly in different directions. I don't think it's a big deal. I think the bigger deal is that this feeds into the sense that the messaging is all over the map. And you know, if you're a lobby group or an industry that's connected to the premier or connected to, you know, folks in the premier's government, there's one set of rules for you. And that if you're not, there's another set of rules for everyone else. And you're also, you know, not not, not only is there another set of rules for you, but all of the blame when things go wrong. Is is directed at you that you weren't doing your part, you weren't you weren't compliant, you were, you know, messing this up for for the rest of us. I think taken in tandem, this tendency to sort of blame and shame, with the fact that the messaging is is pretty garbled, it sets up a dynamic that makes it, you know, really challenging moving forward to keep people on side.
1: And it's not. Uh... It's not super fair of me to get you on this show and then ask you political questions. So I will I will move on from those. But what I'm what I'm really interested in in hearing from you because there's been a whole lot of noise in the reporting around the numbers from from various people whether or not the number of cases matter, whether it's the deaths, whether it's the positivity rate, you know. So let's just say right now it is Tuesday as as you look at where the numbers in Ontario have gone uh, over the last little while, what jumps out to you?
2: These things are always like the parable of the three blind people and the elephant, where you know, the one who grabs the I think we've used this one before, one grabs the leg and says it's a tree trunk, the other grabs tail tail and says it's a rope, and the other grabs a trunk and says it's a fire hose, and then they compare notes right. and realize it's an elephant. And I think, you know, I think surveillance and understanding what the pandemic's doing is a lot like that. What we teach epidemiology students is. To understand whether or not there's an outbreak, to understand whether or not you have a problem, you need a stable baseline to compare against. So, you need measurement to be relatively stable because an outbreak or an epidemic or what have you is going to be a deviation from your expectations, a deviation from usual patterns. When mm-hmm. we have test numbers fluctuating up and down because of whatever issues they are that they're having in the lab, and I don't know what exactly the issues are, but clearly there, there's some struggles there. That makes it very difficult because our baseline is no longer stable and the numbers are all over the map. What we've started to rely on more strongly have been test positivity numbers, the fraction of tests that turn positive, and those are up sharply. So no matter what's happening to the testing denominator, the numerator is rising, which is consistent with you know, our belief about what's going on with this disease in Ontario right now, which is, you know, expected. We're into the second wave of the pandemic, it's fall. And, and so things are going up. So, you, you know, that doesn't mean that the case counts are meaningless. It just, you know, they need to be interpreted in context. I think at the end of the day, you know, ultimately what we're looking at are what are lagging indicators, which are still doing okay. The lagging indicators being deaths, hospitalizations and ICU hospitalizations I was just saying to a colleague before we started talking that as of right now, what we see is a linear increase in hospitalizations, in um, ICU admissions, and even in the number of nursing homes that are in outbreaks. So, so none of those things are pleasant, positive things to talk about as people are getting sick and are dying. But what's playing out right now looks very different than it did in the spring, where you had all of these things changing in an exponential manner, which means they were going up and up and up faster and faster and faster. doesn't mean that's not potentially ahead of us, but for the moment, what we see is linear growth. So you could draw a straight line through what's happening to um, ICUs, what's happening to hospitalizations, and what's happening to long-term care outbreaks.
1: As an epidemiologist, how do you go about determining... What's to blame for that difference, for the the linear instead of the exponential growth?
2: It's really difficult, right? Because we don't actually have, we don't have a control Ontario where we can do something in one Ontario, do something different in another. So you fall back on sort of quasi-experiment and observational data and modeling. You know, it's sort of an ecologist's worldview. You sort of see this complex system at work and you try to come up with a model that makes sense in terms of how you, what your priors were, how you thought the system worked, what you have in the data and you run that out and see, well, does this look like what we see in the real world or does it not? I think, I think a huge piece of the puzzle right now is that there was a lot of self-protective behavior over the summer, especially among older people who really stayed out of circulation. And even now in terms of per test positivity, what we see is it's much much lower in folks over age 60 than it is in, in, in younger adults and in children. The difficulty of course, is that in, in, in as much as a, it's age that really confers risk for these more severe outcomes, in as much as that's a good news story, the problem with that is obviously this doesn't stay sealed up in any one particular age group. And you do see this percolation up, up the age scale. You also right now, what we're seeing is um, amplification I think in schools I suspect, you know, by the time this airs, I think folks will realize that the schools are really starting to heat up, as in terms of transmission. I would love to be wrong about that, but we've been seeing that in the per test positivity in the under ten year olds over the last say ten days or so, where it's really been flat from the get go. You know, the, the little kids never really budged, and now all of a sudden their per test positivity is going up and up and up and up. And I think that's schools. And again, to circle that background, those little kids aren't hermetically sealed off from the rest of society. They interact with adults, they interact with grandparents, they interact with teachers. So we may have some dark stuff ahead. Uh, But for now, we're, 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 we're sort of seem to be doing okay. You know, the other thing that has to be taken into consideration when you look at case counts and compare them and You know, there are newspaper headlines that say, oh, it's the most cases since April. Well, in April, we were testing 2,000 people a day. And now, you know, even with the struggles, you're testing 20,000, 30,000, 40,000 people a day. So you'd expect to find more of this stuff. So it's very difficult. It's very much an apples to oranges kind of comparison. In
0: 2007, TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show.
1: uh, I will call them theories that I've heard floating around out there, and I wouldn't normally ask you this stuff, except I've I've heard these from a few a few really smart people, um, and one is that the virus is now less deadly than it was in the spring, either through mutation or through that we've you know sort of tangentially acquired a better resistance to it.
2: Yeah, I, I I don't know. I, I, a lot of folks are looking at that and trying to find evidence for that. And I, and I don't think anybody's really seen that yet. ICU outcomes may have improved. We haven't seen that in Ontario yet. In Italy and New York are the two places I'm aware of where folks have published on that, where it looks as though survivability of this in the ICUs is improving. And I think that's great. You know, I think intensivists have learned how to ventilate people better. There is a randomized trial right now going on on anticoagulation in Canada. I'm sure there are a number of them. I'm not aware of any that are completed, but um, one of the things that seems to kill people is blood clotting issues that come about with this virus. So anticoagulation may be helpful. This um, uh, steroid drug, corticosteroid dexamethasone, seems to reduce the, the risk of both going into the ICU in the first place and also um, dying once you're in the ICU. What's been interesting this week is that there are a bunch of you know, various and sundry uh, drugs taken off shelves that were subjected to a big randomized trial by the World Health Organization this week, uh, including uh, Donald Trump's parent favorite drug hydroxychloroquine Right. Um, uh, remdesivir, which has some evidence supporting it from a very limited randomized trial. The WHO trial that came out this week is, is a bust for all those drugs. So we don't think it's those drugs that are doing it, but dexamethasone uh, uh, getting more skilled at ventilating people and anticoagulating them may have really changed outcomes. Something that's been really interesting in Ontario, and I don't know what the explanation for it is, is that the risk of death in long-term care homes seems to be declining, mm-hmm. which is really interesting. When this first hit, about 40% of the people in, in care homes were dying in Ontario, and it's down now below 10%, which is still, you know, you're still talking about Ebola-level case fatality. fatalities, terrible, but it's, it, looks, it looks quite different over time. And whether that is, you know, there's this rather grim epidemiologic term for that, which is harvesting, which is the people who are going to die. You know, we already had two or 3,000 deaths. The people who are going to be very susceptible to dying from this are gone. Uh, uh, another possibility is that we're finding a lot more of this in long-term care homes so, that, so the denominator is bigger because we're testing more. I don't know what the you know I don't know what the answer to that is but that that actually does look like a positive development so given
1: um you know that even though we're in the middle uh, of uh, a second wave that seems to be rising um, there are all these kind of relatively positive indicators will we still be able to Make it through this, and I know you can't say one way or the other. But looking at the numbers, can you know, given all those uh, those factors, can we make it through this uh, without another massive lockdown, which seems to get predicted every time we see one of those new, you know, oh, it's above nine hundred, it's above eight hundred type spikes?
2: I don't think there's any reason for that. I mean, I think what we understand now is that risk is so heterogeneous that there's no reason to lock society down broadly you know, the Japanese have been on this from the beginning in terms of um, the idea that this is a virus that spreads well in closed, close and crowded spaces. Uh, With continuous exposure, um, what we've really learned over the last four or five months is that this is highly likely that aerosol transmission is what drives this. And what we have is a relatively non-infectious virus that causes big outbreaks. I've started calling it have we ever discussed the Lemony Snicket model of? COVID?
1: I don't think so. But now I want to hear it.
2: Okay. So, so, just, you know, it's just a series of unfortunate events that, that what, we, what we see is that most people, somewhere between 30 and 70% of folks with COVID, infect exactly nobody before they get better. So, the, the, so, so it's a very non infectious pathogen in most primary cases. So we have most secondary cases coming from a minority of primary cases. That implies that you have um, a, a small minority of infected individuals generating large numbers of secondary cases. How would that occur? Well, with a uh, there's a grad student at U of T named Paul Chen who's got some brilliant work that's just up as a preprint showing that there's tremendous skewing to viral load in people's. Basically snot, okay. We call it respiratory mucus and be fancy. Your snot viral load is highly variable for individuals, it's very skewed. So there's a distribution of the long tail. So, you know, most people have relatively low viral loads in their mucus when they when they get infected with this. A small fraction of people have very high viral loads in their mucus. Those folks are most infectious early in. Early in infection, it seems to viral load seems to peak on the day when you first get symptoms, but it's already high before you get symptoms. So there we get into this whole thing of pre-symptomatic transmission. Uh, Once people have symptoms, those symptoms may include cough, which is really great at generating aerosol. So that's part of the mystery is you know, you got someone who's sick and is out and about and coughing and has high viral load. Okay, they can make aerosol. But you also have folks who don't have any symptoms yet, but have high viral load. And that probably speaks what we've been seeing with choirs, with, uh, you know, spinning studios, with karaoke bars. You have people right. who don't feel sick yet who are doing things that generate aerosol, like singing and, and shouting. You just
1: need one or two of those heavy viral load people.
2: And then, boom, you're in it. And, and, and if you have that happen over and over again, even if it's a low-prop event, it creates the appearance that this is just a regular epidemic growing exponentially, but in fact it's two different processes it's these explosions and these zeros, and what we see in the surveillance data is a is a weighted average of those things. but that has huge implications because if this is aerosol, if this is place based transmission right there, there are some places that are just it's like you know it's like the usual suspect. show me the usual suspect you know bring them in. <laughs> Bring them in, Biff. Bring in the usual suspects. We got a, you know, we got a gym. We got a bar. We yeah. got a, you know, a wedding with some, you know, clown singing and dancing around. We've got, you know, these gatherings that keep coming up over and over again. We've got prolonged bus rides, train rides, and so forth. Right. You know, those are the places where you can actually focus your effort. And w- what can you do? You can try and, you know, use things if they're workplaces, like in meatpacking plants. You can try and use testing to identify people before they have symptoms, keep them out. You can use things like um, like pooled sewage testing, which is actually wonderful. Wonders actually come online in Ontario. Ontario is innovating. That's, that's that's kind of something that's sort of wonderful to see. We're we, doing
1: some innovative shit.
2: We're, we're literally doing innovative shit and it works. And it's it's online now in Ottawa and Peel. And not only can you see the risk signal going up, as as my colleague Peter Uni says, it's the ultimate pooled testing. Mm-hmm. So, so not only can you see risk going up as the sewage signal goes up, you can actually see risk go down with what the government did uh, about 10 days ago in terms of the phase three restrictions, you can actually see that working in this as reflected in the sewage, which is kind of incredible. You can work heavily on things like ventilation, you can mask people, you can close the places that aren't essential to your economy and pay them to stay closed because it's gonna net out as a gain for the economy if you pay bars and restaurants to stay closed and you're not having to do all this stuff elsewhere in the economy. So there's actually a ton we can do one of the biggest difficulties is we have to in order to get there, we have to start by acknowledging that this is aerosol transmitted, which is a really weird thing that involves a lot of healthcare politics. And I don't even know if you want to go there.
1: Well, no, I what I want to talk about before I let you go, to bring it back to to where we started, is that this has been a fascinating discussion about just how varied it is based on risk, based on number of cases versus severity, based on who spreads it and who doesn't. And all all I hear as you tell me this stuff as as a reporter is that that's a, that's a communication nightmare. Like everything is different. It's just incredibly hard to message because for most people, the outcomes will be so different from what they're being told to be aware of that, you know...
2: Yeah. No, I, I've been calling this Schrodinger's coronavirus. It's totally Schrodinger's coronavirus and it's driving people crazy because it is simultaneously a highly virulent pathogen and something that for most people who get it is no big deal. So, you, you know, you try doing a press conference where you message that. This it, is a lethal pathogen that in most people causes mild infection. And also most of you won't spread it except for a few of you who really, really will. Exactly. Exactly. And that's over distributed, Pareto distributed, are not. And I know the first time the first time I did a podcast with you on COVID, before we called it COVID, when we called it like Wuhan fish market disease or whatever it was, was we talked about the fact that it seemed like it wasn't that infectious and yet you had this big cluster in a hospital like at the same time, the first publication said the reproduction number is 0.3, each old case makes 0.3 new case before it gets better. So it's not gonna cause a pandemic. That, that same day, there was this Wuhan hospital outbreak with 14 cases, I think coming from a primary case. And that right there was what we're talking about, you know, nine months later in terms right. of that over distributed R-naught. And so those two things that this extraordinary variation in severity, and the over-distributed, Pareto-distributed, most secondary cases come from very few primary cases, uh, 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 are not thing. Those, those turn it into Schrodinger's coronavirus where it's simultaneously virulent and also not virulent. It's simultaneously highly infectious and not that infectious. And it's really difficult to message that. And then you get into the whole thing about kids where, oh, well, you know, for a long time, it, into this thing, it was you know, oh, kids don't even get infected, and now we're talking about you know, oh, did schools spark that resurgence in Israel or what? What have you? So, <laughs> you know, kids are not affected, but they are infected,
1: or they can be in thirty-person classrooms, but they can't trick or treat outside.
2: Yeah, yeah. So, you know, and 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 not to not to not to, you know, let let the province off the hook here because I I think the messaging has been pretty muddled, but I think it's important to have you know, a little bit of, of sympathy for folks who are trying to message this when it's such a contradictory mess. And then you get into the whole airborne thing, which to me, acknowledging that is really, it's like, the, the, I, I think it's, it's kind of, is the path out of here. I mean, the ultimate path out of here will be vaccine. But in the nearer term, there's a lot that we could do if we acknowledge that this was aerosol. But there you're getting into the term aerosol having particular connotations for the folks who work in the infection control community in North America, having connotations in terms of what happens to N95 masks and whether everyone is going to have a run on the shelves for the N95 masks and so forth. So that that weirdly has become very political. Before
1: I let you go, because uh, this is something I've read about and still don't quite understand. Can you quickly try to explain the difference between uh, droplets and aerosols and what changes when we admit
2: that? So, so what changes is there's a couple of things. One is that we have to acknowledge that ventilation is very important and that what confers risk masks are hugely important if this is uh, transmitted by aerosol. We've got the masks going on in Ontario now, which is great. But ventilation, particularly in places like schools, in industrial workplaces and so forth, is really important. And we may actually need to do a lot of work on that. We may have some infrastructure work to do. Um, It's also important because, you know, there's this wonderful article in in The Atlantic by Zeynep Tufeki, who's a a sociologist who pointed out, you know, one of the implications of an over-distributed R, which is, what you get with aerosol, most people aren't infectious, but you have these this lemony snicket kind of series of unfortunate events thing where, you know, you have a high viral load individual singing in a closed, close and crowded space. Um, all of a sudden you have many secondary infections from that primary case. The implication of that is that we're doing contact tracing wrong. And as she says, it's not forward contact tracing, it's backward contact tracing. What you wanna know is not who your case was in touch with, Uh, since they've been infectious. But where did they come from? What large clustered event generated that case? Because that's your pathway back to finding all the other cases. This is a very different way of doing things. And that may be facilitated with tech like QR code readers, which, for example, in New Zealand, when you go into a coffee shop or restaurant, you tap in, that gives you a diary of where you've been, And it also gives public health a way to link people together who have shared place and time via QR. And we've actually done that in Ontario. We did that early on. If you think of a QR equivalent as being Presto cards, I don't know if you remember early on, there was an exposure on a go bus, say they tracked down who was on the bus with a Presto card. So you could potentially be doing that sort of thing for contact tracing rather than saying, oh, you know, let's try to figure out who all you've been in touch with since we think you became infectious? You go backwards and try to find out Well, where did this person's infection come from? Because the clustered nature of these infections suggests you're gonna, you know, you're gonna find a rich vein of infections via that kind of intervention, rather than moving forward where you'll find a bunch of dead ends.
1: I hope we can uh, synthesize these changes fast enough to uh, help us out this fall. Thank you so much, David, for doing this.
2: It's a pleasure. I mean. You know, To end on an optimistic note, we're, we're learning a lot, and, and I do think the province is doing better.
1: Dr. David Fissman of the Dalla Lana School of Public Health at the University of Toronto. That was The Big Story. If you would like more from us, head to thebigstorypodcast.ca. If you put Fissman in the search bar, you can hear all of his appearances. You can also find us on Twitter at thebigstoryfpn. You can email us, the Big Story Podcast, all one word, all lowercase, at rci.rogers.com. And of course, we're in your podcast player, whichever one you like Apple, Google, Stitcher, Spotify, doesn't matter. Leave a rating, leave a review, tell us how much you like it. We appreciate it. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath We'll talk tomorrow.
0: Split screen Kid Nation, a six part podcast from CBC available now.